and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today we're talking with Nick Mim and Brandon Smith, the director and DP respectively, of the new documentary In the Dark of the Valley, which premieres on MSNBC um, this Sunday, if you're hearing this come out, uh, November 14th at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 Pacific. Uh, In the Dark of the Valley is a uh, documentary about um, a nuclear event that happened uh, at the Santa Susana Field Lab up in Simi Valley uh, here in Los Angeles. Um, Most people have not heard of this event. It happened in 1959, and essentially, quick answer, uh, it hasn't been cleaned up, and it has been um, infecting the groundwater, and, uh, you know, when that big fire happened, got tossed everywhere. And so this documentary not only chronicles that event and, and kind of what happened before and after, but also um, a few families that were affected and, and their fight uh, to get the site cleaned up and also obviously fight for their families, which have uh, been effective, affected uh, health-wise. Um, I will say this podcast is a bit of a nepotism podcast because... Um, I, too, very, very, very gently helped uh, with this film, and these are actually two of my good friends. So, um, with that being said, uh, it's a fantastic documentary. Again, highly recommend you see it. Uh, MSNBC, November 14th, uh, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 Eastern. Um, But, you know, if, if at some point in the future you can on demand it uh please do it's it's shocking um what the u.s government boeing and nasa have gotten away with um but yeah so without any adus to be furthered here's my conversation with nick mim and brandon smith to start normally what we'll do is uh just figure out like kind of where you're coming from so we'll start with brandon what got you into cinematography? Were you always visual growing up or, or did that change over time? Did you do something else to start off? I think um, it's where I feel like I'm still getting into cinematography. Like I definitely don't know what I'm doing. It started out as a hobby, just like photography. Um, I like doing time lapses and night photography and stuff like that. And somehow I think I was working as a PA um, on a Netflix show and the show went long. Um, the AC quit. I became friends with the cam op who turned me, I think I, I jumped from a PA to a camera PA to an AC to like a junior op, like a C cam all within the span of a show. That was like six months running, I think. And, um, so I, I didn't, I didn't move up like most DPs or cinematographers or cam ops do. Um, it just kind of happened for me. Um, and I like it. So I just keep going with it. Um, what was your, what was your initial intent? Like starting as a, as a PA, like were you just trying to figure out where you'd fit on a film set or. Yeah. I was trying to pay rent and my friend Keenan Knight, he was working as a producer on the same show. And he asked if I wanted to come in as a PA for a little bit. And I did. Um, yeah. And I, I always knew I wanted to be in like the film business somehow. But I, like, I honestly just wasn't, wasn't sure how at all. Like I did the producer thing. I worked for production companies for a while. Um, I played around with editing, but that was never really my thing either. Um, so I, I got really lucky just jumping into the, the camera world. Um, I'm still not good 
at all when it comes to technical, um, the technical side of things. But well, to be fair, like a lot of the DPs I've interviewed have all said kind of the same thing of like the tech, the the technological advancement of cinematography and the joy therein is a relatively new um, thing. You know, totally. Most people just shot for, you know, the, the image, not necessarily what took the image. Right. And I think like documentary cinematography is totally different. I mean, I don't think I know it is uh, different from, you know, like shooting TV shows or movies or anything like that. It's not really like about um, it's just different. You know, it's more about being familiar with the subject and the story and um, be, just being present when you need to be present more so than it is about setting up the perfect shot. Um, yeah. It's, it, it, would you say it is more like um, maybe not directing, but you kind of are in that same brain of it's, it's less about maybe the image and more about the, the moment. Definitely. Like, absolutely. I think, um, I think for, I mean, for this specific project, it was great that we were all three, Derek, Nick, and myself, we we're all three producers with cameras um, on set. So I think, you know, while I have the DP credit on this one, I'm not like, I was not there for all of the most important moments. I've told Nick and D several times, some of my favorite shots or like my actually, like actually my two favorite shots um, were theirs. Uh, so it's just, it's about being in the right moment at the right time, I think. And you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of started off early on, uh, as a photographer, just like, um, on your own time, like you, you got it. What got you into photography? Yeah. Uh, God, I have no idea. Um, I started doing it. My brother talked me into getting a camera at one point and I bought a little Canon 70 D and I thought that was the biggest purchase I was ever going to make. Like in my life, it felt huge. And, um, I did a little road trip by myself. Um, and as a way to keep myself busy, I think I just went out and took photos. I did a lot of um, night photography just because I, mean, I was bored. I just wanted to get out of the car or the tent for a little bit. So I would just wander and take photos. Actually, one time I was in Arches National Park and I thought it would be cool. Like I had seen a photo of the Milky Way cutting through the delicate arch. And I was like, I want to get up there and see what that looks like in person. And I got there. And some guy showed up and taught a class on night photography. And so I learned so much just like by accident. What, you just happened to be there when a guy started teaching a class? I was already there and he (laughs) rolled up. And there were a lot of people trying to take photos at the same time. So he kind of orchestrated the lights and the cameras and told everybody like when to, you know, start their shutter and things like that. And it just turned into like a a master class of night photography. And um, from there, I just kind of took those lessons and, moved around. I think I was working as a PA on another job and they had seen my time lapses that I just posted on line or Instagram or whatever was around at that point. And um, they sent me out to do time lapses for the show. And I think that was part of what kind of got me um, some camera work later on. Uh, Coming up, were you, did you like look up to any photographers or DPs or anything like that, um, that you kind of mentally were like, I would like my stuff to look like that. Or was it all just kind of experimentation totally experimentation but i didn't know i wanted to be a dp or a photographer or right. anything so that was never anything i really looked into um growing up i knew i mean there was you know gosh all kinds of directors that i loved i loved just movies in general i was very into like the behind the scenes i remember getting so many books about like the behind the scenes 
process for the Titanic. I had so many James Cameron just books of what they did on set. And I think, I don't know, maybe I knew that I wanted to get into, I don't know, something, something behind the camera at some point, but um, yeah, I don't sure. know. Yeah. For, no, for me, it was, question. yeah. well, for, it, the funny thing is for me, it's like, I, I knew same thing. I knew I wanted to get into film. I didn't really know what, cause I didn't know what jobs there were. Right. And then as, as I became a DP and like got through, you know, years of like knowing the whole craft, I realized I should have gotten into props. That's what I was most interested in was like filming the lightsaber is cool, but making the lightsaber is way cooler. You know, are you still, are you still more into props now? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, like in spirit, like obviously my career is 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 where it is. But like I've got a couple of friends that work at Legacy. Like a couple of my friends built Grogu. And so that's and I'm just sitting there going like you like you live in the dream. And, and of course, their their grass is always greener. They're like, well, yeah, your job is more interesting to us. And it's like, yeah, um, yeah. No, that is cool, though. It's all I think it's all the stuff you don't know about, which makes it fun and interesting and yeah, learning's always more fun. I think once you once you've established that you kind of know something, it's like, well, now I want to learn something new. Yeah, agreed. Um, Nick, what about you? You, what got you into uh, filmmaking? Because you're not a DP. Um, no, I'm not a DP. Um, I can barely run a camera. But uh, yeah, I think what got in, like, if I'm honest, and I think both of you know this about me by now, it was the movie Jurassic Park. Um, <laughs> didn't um it was definitely in the movie jurassic park um and then just kind of the filmmaking of steven spielberg to be like you know i know that's as as cliche as you can get but um uh i think i, I as a kid i learned you know I, I have steven spielberg books like brian was saying i was always reading books about my favorite filmmaker and one thing he know he uh, I learned about him was that he likes to focus on stories about ordinary people in ex- extraordinary situations, right? And that kind of always stuck with me growing up, and I've always kind of wanted to to kind of tell those stories. And it, and it all kind of started as just a re- like a really little kid, like 10, 11, 12, with a little video camera making just like this. I don't know if we can cuss on this you podcast, yeah, but yeah, it's fine. This is like the <laughs> shittiest little. Uh, horror films with my neighbors um and you know there there were always sequels to famous ones like the ring like i made a sequel to the ring in my backyard (laughs) in my basement right i made a jurassic park sequel i'm pretty sure at some point and it like a little like a little uh velociraptor puppet and uh just kind of so from a very young age i've been i've been trying to to make make stories with with what i had and they were not always successful but uh i guess that that uh that love for it and that fuel and that fire for it that never, ever died. So, um, here we what are. was it? What was where it about those? Jurassic park? Oh, go ahead, Brandon. I was going to say, where are those shorts? Those are the ones I want to see. Oh God. I'm sure my mom has them somewhere <laughs> in the house. I was going to say, what, uh, what was it about Jurassic park that obviously it's a fantastic film, but, um, what was about that movie? Cause that whole era of like, when is that? 97, like that, there's like a four year, Stretch of films. Actually. Oh, that was ninety three. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of Lost World. But in any case, uh, that era, even the nineties in general, just so many good movies that came out that are still today considered like the best. What was it about Jurassic Park that like really sat with you, or was I mean, it just the moment of being a kid? 
it was I just I remember seeing that film on opening day with my mom and like I was four years old and I was standing in line at the theater in Denver, Colorado. And I, I remember, I just remember it so vividly and it's, you know, it's, I, uh, I'm sure I have earlier memories than that, but that is like one of my earliest memories is watching Jurassic Park with my mom. And, um, and it, I don't know, it's just like, it just really captivates you. I think, you know, you guys have both seen it a thousand times. It's, it's, uh, you find something new about it every time you watch, I've watched, I've watched it. I watched it several times a year for several times a year for 30 30 something years, you know, like, so it's, uh, um, or however that old that movie is, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just kind of ridiculous how, uh, how you find something new and then the graphics still hold up, uh, to this day, uh, you know, the T-Rex coming, coming over the paddock, uh, in that one scene still is one of the, the most, most breathtaking scenes in, in the history of cinema. And it's so old. <laughs> it's, you know the earliest forms of CGI, and it's still some of the some of the best images that you'll ever find in movies. Do you do you find that uh, CG these days takes you out of it, and you and because obviously the argument for everyone is like CG versus uh, practical effects, but a lot of people don't realize that like a lot of cg is super hidden and you would never know like uh, yeah. Blade Runner twenty forty nine like a ton of that shit that looks like set is just set extensions. Squid Game. I thought the the walls in Squid Game for like the red light green mm-hmm. light game. Those are just blue screens. I don't know just why they didn't screen. just paint it, but like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you definitely have a better. I ha- knowing that kind of thing, like where, in, even in Social Network, the amount of CGI in that movie, you wouldn't think that's a movie with C- a lot of CGI, but it's just you know, just ha- having the appropriate backdrops and um, and I I think I I appreciate it more when I know how subtle it is when I know it's used for subtlety, when it, when it's used for these big explosive things, it's cool, obviously in its own right, but um, you do know it's fake and you do uh, you, you know, you gotta get annoyed with it, I guess um, at some points, but, um, but when it's subtle like that, like what you're mentioning, it's like, I have a lot more appreciation for it. Well, the, and I know as a, as the resident uh, Fincher Stan, uh, I do know that he uses a lot of CG to just make his life easier so like if he needs to get a light in closer, but it's a lock off, they'll mm-hmm. just bring the lo- the light in closer and then pull it away at the end and just comp out. They'll just replace the foot like you could. Anyone could do that in fucking iMovie, yeah. let alone Premiere, you know, just chop out or a, or a boom mic. Yeah. You know. And then I think in the movie Parasite, I could be wrong, but I think in Parasite, uh, yeah. the, uh, the house that the, the actual practical house that they use is only one story. And then they, yep. you know, but it's such a perfect and subtle addition to it and it, it's it, yeah it's like pretty mind-blowing what you can get away with and no one will ever question it you know yeah when uh after your sort of uh seminal moment with jurassic park were you just always into like anything that um um holy shit i almost said stanley kubrick three times steven, steven spielberg what? good yeah. lord <laughs> uh were you just always kind of like following what he did or did that kind of expand your mind to other films or was it kind of like a one track kind of thing uh, it was, there was a lot of Steven Spielberg, uh, obviously, but I think, I think during that era, there's just so many kind of epic stories that, um, I still like Brandon, Derek and I, Derek's the other producer on the film, uh, that we still like talk about, uh, all the time, like Forrest Gump, Shawshank Redemption, like those films all kind of came out around the same time. 
and are just absolutely timeless. Um, they're, they still move you no matter uh, how many times you watch them. Um, and I think a lot to do with it is the soundtracks of those films. Like all of us, the three of us are always, always have those soundtracks on in the background when we're, that's we're huge, doing something. Huge yeah. for movie for us. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, I think, I don't, I don't know. So it's, it, those types of films always just really captivated me. And there's just something about watch, like you're watching a really good movie. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to explain. You're just watching a really good movie. You're hooked, you're addicted and you're going to continue watching that. And if any time you find that feeling, you know, it's, it's just like you want to keep uh, replicating it as, as, as you continue being a viewer. Yeah. So, yeah. I know, I know you just said it's hard to explain, but uh, I'll make you explain it. What, what do you think? Obviously, aesthetically, there are differences, but I, I too believe that there seems to be a sort of difference between most movies that are coming out now and ones that came out in the 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And one could argue, so like to your example of Shawshank, that did not do well in the box office. One of my favorite films, Fight Club, which I, apparently now you're not allowed to be a fan of, but uh, <laughs> you know, not good, did not do well in the box office. Um, mm-hmm. And then on DVD found its stride, um, which nowadays that doesn't really exist. But do, can you pinpoint maybe something that you maybe see lacking in uh, modern cinema or, or maybe something that actually is reminiscent of, of uh, the movies that you love from the sort of 90s and early 2000s? Yeah, maybe. I, I, and I'm not just saying this because we're on a you know cinematography podcast, but I think it is the the visual storytelling um you know you have in like for example in Shawshank Redemption you have that iconic shot of him crawling out of the gutter and then looking up to the sky and in the rain and like you know he's free or in movies like Road to Perdition you have uh that that scene in the rain (laughs) with with Tom Hanks and he you know um tell us about your other rain movies that you enjoy but but I think you're you're missing uh, you, I feel like movies today were missing those kind of like epic visuals that take a. I th- and if, I don't know because it, it, it takes a lot of effort to do them. They're very expensive. I don't know. I, I could. I'm just like, but you, you don't see as much. I I did I did see it in. I bring it up again. Parasite. Parasite is a great example of visual storytelling. You know, you have your main character going up the hill towards the rich neighborhoods and it's like actual visual representation of, of his life. Right. And so, and I think, you know, maybe you're, you're lacking that in some movies these days. You're, you're, it's very straightforward. You want, you know, you want to get the basic coverage instead of trying to, trying to, to give your audience a message through what's in your frame. Well, and something I maybe would volunteer that I've kind of been thinking about is that like, um, contrast right film all all cinemas is contrast in some form you know loud and quiet light and dark and uh you know uh, uh, angry sad whatever and nowadays it's a lot easier to make a hundred percent it's it's a lot easier to make loud you know where where before if you really wanted that set piece you had to put a lot of work into that set piece and now transformers is you know not to harp on the one film that everyone picks on but is one long set piece mm-hmm. um so yeah, I, I think maybe maybe that contrast sometimes gets lost when it's so easy to make the shiniest thing. Yeah, and on that, I, th- I feel like pacing 
of films. I feel like they, they used to be much like you could get away with a slow burn back in the day. And I, I love that there's so many superhero movies now, like Transformers or like any of the Marvel movies, which which I love. But um, I mean, they, they might be starting to come back around a little bit like The King on Netflix was a very slow, kind of a quiet movie. Love that movie. Just, oh, it's so great. And um, The Dig, Nick, you and I were just talking about The Dig the other day. That's another movie that. Like, I mean, it came out on Netflix, but it's not, it doesn't feel like a Netflix kind of movie. It's not, you know, made for the, um, you know, the viewers with short attention spans and somebody who's just ready to get to the next fight scene or action scene or. Yeah. And, and to re- retract my statement a little bit and to kind of go off what Brandon was saying, I, the, the movies that are telling stories well and um, that are using visuals to really to, to you know convey a message they do exist they do they absolutely yeah. they're exist just not in the today's ones we they're just in they're just not mainstream anymore you know they're right, like yeah, yeah. Shawshank Redemption would be made today it wouldn't be that successful you know but um uh yeah I think you know we're we're grasping at what's easy to consume but um those movies do exist and um, you know I feel power I feel- to those filmmakers I don't know. How, like, how, do you, how do you guys feel? I feel like people are kind of starting to look for I, this almost in the same way that we're like longing to get back into a theater after, after the pandemic. I feel like we're like longing for like another kind of slow burn epic, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood kind of look at the reaction to Dune. Dune is a three hour political drama, right. which is mostly talking and people are fucking all about it. And it looks beautiful too, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's fantastic, but so far it is literally like you might want to drink a coffee before you go in because it is right kind of three hours of people talking, right? Which is cool, which is great. It's different and exciting well, and it's, in that way. It's very it's cerebral, you know. It's, it's right. one of, famously one of the more cerebral films. Right. Um, I just saw last night in Soho. Have you seen that? Yeah, no, it's on my list this week, bro. You yeah. got it. That's a good one, Brandon. What do you one. think of that? I, I loved it. I mean, I'm a huge fan of hers to begin with. So, I mean, I was going to love it no matter what, but, uh, Anna Taylor joy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, um, I don't know, man, it was just fun. I, I went, I think I went to like a, a one o'clock showing right in the middle of the day, just wanted to see a movie and it felt, it just felt good. It felt like a movie, which I haven't had in a while. Um, yeah. Me, it, me it was and, uh, fun me and Danny saw it on Christmas or excuse me on Halloween uh, at like 8 PM. So that really is not given any spoilers to anyone who hasn't seen it, but it, it, <laughs> it was a perfect Halloween movie, man. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It really was. Nick, get on it. I'm on it. The, the other one we just saw was a uh, French dispatch. Mm. French dispatch was also uh, just like enjoyable. I, you know, it felt, I think it's it's funny you say it felt like a movie because I think what feels like a movie to me is something that like I can't just get anywhere. I can't just like, you know, flip through Netflix or whatever and just, oh, yeah, because there's a lot of the same. Like, right. So last night in Soho, very different, very um, uh, magical in some ways. Uh, so that felt like a movie. French Dispatch was just so I hate to use the word quaint, but like yeah. it's just like. Sure. Fuck it. 
Um, <laughs> but it's just like was fun. It was just enjoyable to watch, you know, these mini vignettes and in, in sort of West. I've never been like a huge Wes Anderson fan necessarily, but um, yeah, it's just a really Nick. What's a film you've seen recently that that got you going? It got me going. Um, well, I was at I was away for a while, so I haven't I'm kind of behind on the movies. But the last movie I saw in theaters was unfortunately Halloween Kills. Um, oh man, <laughs> uh, which it, which it, it was. You know, I hope the filmmakers don't listen to this podcast, but um, they don't. It wasn't very good, uh, and which was really disappointing because I'm a huge fan of the Halloween series. Like ever ever since I was a little kid. As I kind of like Jurassic Park, I would watch all the Halloween movies. Um, and then when they rebooted it um, that with in 2018, I absolutely loved that movie. It like brought back all this nostalgia of like being a, like a little kid and scared of Michael Myers. Um, like he was going to be hiding in your closet. And it was, it was just like really perfectly done in my my opinion. Uh, and That's the one where he was one, in prison? Well, he he's in prison in the yeah in the first one. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and then yeah, okay. and then he escapes. Um, and then this one is a continuation of that of that film, like of the same night. And it just it tried its hand at political commentary. I think it had a little a little side story about like the January sixth riots, which was just oh weird, which was just unnecessary uh, in my opinion. They it just wasn't it didn't come across well. It just, it just kind of seemed cheesy, and uh, it was a very much a step down from the. I'm not a film critic, but it was very much a step down from the from the last one, which I still love to this day. So I'll I'll continue watching the first one, and I look forward to the next one. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it's a, hopefully it's a little better. Yeah, I mean it's, I'm. It, that's so fucking weird that they just were like, hold on, let's be topical with a Halloween film. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was so obvious what they were trying to say, like very, very obvious. Uh, yeah, like, look at this evil man and like causing this insurrection <laughs> like it was not <laughs> great. It's like yeah, uh, I was pretty disappointed. I was actually very mad. If you, if you ask my wife, it, I was walking out of the theater like, what the hell? <laughs> like, I feel betrayed from this movie but I'm, i they they have another chance they're good the, the third one comes out next year and i'm, I'm oh that. they're making another one yeah it's the, the sure. third of a trilogy and so they have they have a chance to redeem themselves yeah jamie lee curtis uh i was about to say jamie lee curtis needs the paychecks no she doesn't <laughs> she's just a fan of her own series um kind of getting into uh the topic at hand your guys's film um sort of uh, Nick, if you could give me like a synopsis sort of what the film's about. And then if the two of you could tell me how you got involved in the story, because it's not necessarily something, obviously it's something that almost nobody knows about, but not necessarily something that you just sort of happen upon um, in a, you know, even in a magazine or talking to a friend or something like that. Yeah. Uh, that is the thing about the story is a huge story that no one knows about. Um uh, so our film is in the dark of the valley, and it follows a group of moms uh, in Southern California, just 30 miles outside of Los Angeles, who discover that there is a contaminated nuclear and uh, and uh, chemical waste uh, site uh, up in Simi Valley, 
And this is that, a documentary, by the way. This yes, is not, this is that, a documentary. That made it sound like the start of another horror film. It is a documentary. Uh, yeah. I, I can start over. Our, our film. No, 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 that's do- fine. No, no, no. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, so our, our documentary follows these moms who discover that this site may have caused, uh, may have uh, had contaminants move off site from the top of this mountain um, in the San Fernando Valley. And it could have possibly caused rare cancers in children and adults in the neighborhood. Um, so the whole thing is chronicling their efforts uh, to get the site cleaned up, which is owned by the Department of Energy, NASA, and Boeing. And it's just been a decades-long battle to clean up the site uh, fully, and it's uh, ongoing as we speak. And that, and that uh, nuclear disaster happened what year? So the nuclear disaster, a nuclear meltdown, partial meltdown, happened in 1959. Um, and uh, there have been decades of nuclear tests uh, on that site. There was plutonium plants. There was they, all this radio, radioactive material was tested there. Um, and then they had decades of uh, rocket testing. It's actually one of the places where they built the rockets that went to the moon. Uh, and so all that, all those rocket tests left uh, a ton of contamination in the soil there. Um, and so it's just for decades, it's been, you know, seeping into the ground and being moved by wind, fire, rain, you name it. Um, and the only way to, to stop that migration of contaminants is to, to get rid of it. So um, these moms have taken upon themselves to try and convince the government to, to you know, do their jobs and protect the community around them. And so when did you guys get started first? So how did you find out about this? And then what year did you kind of get started, you know, realizing that, oh, shit, this needs this is something that more people need to know about, um, you know, via documentary. You kind of I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's when you said it's not something you just kind of stumble upon. Um, We did just stumble upon the story. It was. we were hired by change.org to do a two minute, um, you disappeared. There you are. We are, we were hired by change.org to do a two minute, uh, petition video for the moms and the cleanup. And we never heard about it before. And so we started doing some interviews and some research and we couldn't believe that this old rocket testing facility was so close to where we all lived here in Los Angeles. Um, so as we did the interviews, we got more and more information about what happened up there. Um, so we convinced change.org to let us turn the two minute video into what, like six, seven minute video. And even after that, there was still so much we wanted to tell that to- like totally separately from change.org, we jumped into uh, a feature um, with the three of us, me, Nick, and our brother, Derek. And um I mean, even then, I mean, what? It's an hour and forty-minute documentary that could very, very easily be three, four, five hours. You know, there's just so much information out there, and even still today, like the story's changing, like every day. Um, you know, so it, even if it were a three, four, five-hour-long series, I think that's it, a series at that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it could continue just to, you know, it continues, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much it ruins a documentary, but th- this hasn't been resolved. No, no. it hasn't, unfortunately. Um, you know, the, the crux of it is that the government had come to a, an agreement 
in 2010 with NASA and the Department of Energy uh, to the, so that the way it goes is there's the regulating California body is the, uh, an organization called the DTSC, the Department of Toxic Substance Control, and they're the regulators of you know environmental cleanups, and so they they set the standards of how you know much a company or a government agency should clean up their mess. Um, and so 2010, they came up with an agreement with the Department of Energy and NASA to glean, clean up the site to uh, to background, which means you know essentially the way you found it. Um, and that was supposed to be done by 2017, and here we are, and it's barely started. You know, they've gotten rid of some buildings, um, and uh, and they've made a little bit of progress, but it's just kind of scratching the surface on what actually needs to be done. Um, so, you know, this this kind of gone. It's it's uh, almost generational now about you know this cleanup fight. It's gone from decade to decade to decade. It's the same old story and the same like the cyclical nature of government kind of gets in the way of any progress being made. And um, unfortunately, you know, it's it seems like we're we're in for more of the same moving forward but uh hopefully hopefully the movie can can spark some some change and get something done yeah get some conversation going and people talking and yeah because it is a it is an intense i was at the uh the premiere and uh or i guess not the uh, whatever the one over here and uh it it is like You know, something that makes a good movie, in my opinion, is one where the entire audience kind of is involved and you feel the collective energy. And that that was a your guys' documentary was one where you could just feel the entire audience just going like, fuck, fuck, especially because you know that it's like up the hill, you yeah. know, so it now it not only is it affecting people that you potentially identify with in the film, but you realize it like it potentially affects you, um, especially if you're someone who's lived in Los Angeles or your family has. Um so kudos there. Uh, talk to me about how like the how the production of the film went, kind of like the more nuts and bolts. Um, you know, how did you get started? You know, uh, did you just kind of grab the closest camera and start interviewing people, or was you know what what was the uh, process there? Because obviously the process of making a documentary is is different than um, uh, standard film. You know, pre production is not quite the same. And this took three years, four years. Yeah, three and a half about. Yeah. yeah. Um, we were so we were lucky in that uh, because of what we were you know, when we started this we were all kind of doing branded projects together and through those projects we had a, you know a couple cameras and Brandon has a couple cameras that we use for those jobs and so and we didn't have any financing for this film um, and we never really got it in the, it's, you know um, at all so it was really lucky that we had. Uh, these cameras just kind of available to us. And so when, when things happened and because our work schedules are pretty flexible, we could just go up to, you know, take, make the drive up to Simi Valley and meet with these families and schedule these interviews with these scientists and these journalists and stuff like that. Um, and uh, we didn't really have to worry about, you know, renting a lot of gear because, you know, we had it, we had our own sound gear and stuff like that. Um, which is, I don't, you know, it's something, you know, I've, I've worked on some other features and, and it's kind of, it, you know, you have to, you have to very much budget out your days. Cause you know, you only have a certain number of days with your DP. You only have a certain number of days of camera rental available to you. But here we kind of, um, being the noobs that we were, 
kind of just had time to figure out our our plan and kind of uh, feel our way around the story and and see what we wanted to do with it. And uh, yeah, I think it's a luxury you don't really get a lot. And then also, you know, with Brandon being the DP, you know, these other projects that I've worked on, you know, you're changing DPs just based on their availability. Um, and fortunately, uh, and then, you know, the look can change, it can stay the same, but, you know, there's always kind of uh, some difference in, in what you're seeing on screen. Um, but with Brandon, uh, we were lucky that he was there for almost every shoot day. So the, you know, the look of the film kind of stays, stays true to what he, you know, started at the very beginning. And, um, and uh, yeah, we have a really a constant visual, I think, visual motif that we keep going throughout the film. Going back to the gear, we, I mean, we, we did have our own cameras and like, I think when we started, maybe a light or two. Um, but we did have to call in a lot of favors. We got lenses from uh, my friend Scott. Kenny, I know we we took your lights and C-stands over and over and over <laughs> and over again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just having friends who were willing to help out, I think that was a, I mean, I get it. It was a huge part. And also we couldn't have done it without them. So what, uh, so how did you write sort of the script for this because um as far as i'm aware that this i mean i assume the more you learned the more it, it changed mm-hmm. yeah totally i mean we had we had the very from the very beginning we knew that melissa bumstead the uh the main mom in our film uh and the, the kind of the leader of this activist group we knew that she want we wanted her to be like the spine of the story um, we wanted to see you know a, a character progression with her and so we used her as a kind of our baseline and kind of built everything around her. Um, and, you know, the, the story obviously in, was constantly evolving. Um, we never had like a, a real script out of it, but we had like a pretty, uh, you know, I, I, I work in with visuals. I don't like reading a ton. So I had, you know, kind of a, a cork board app where we had our, our shore all kind of laid out in front of us and it would be constantly moving things back and forth and swapping things. And um, so it was just kind of even to the last day of our edit, we were always working through that document um, and kind of building, building the story out. And, uh, and, and, you know, kind of we selected our, our themes that we wanted to focus on very early on and, you know, more or less stuck to those themes as we, as we, uh, continued production and it, it really helped it kind of helped to have that roadmap especially on the shoot days when you have that roadmap you in you don't want to just ever shoot just to shoot right you want to have a goal in mind and so having that roadmap is really helpful and kind of getting what we wanted to get and keeping keeping our eye out for things and that that also helped having a close-knit team it was just the three of us so we were all very familiar with that roadmap and you know i didn't have to to hover over Brandon's shoulders when we were on his shoes, like, oh, make sure we get this because that that will fit really well with this. They already knew all that stuff. Um, so we kind of had our shorthand, you know, um, pretty established, you know, pretty well into the, into the shoot. And, and uh, it, it helped, it helped a lot. Yeah, having a small team, I mean, this isn't really related to that question you were asking, but just having a small team, I mean, it, it's hard and, so many different ways but it's huge in a few very big ways like nick was saying like i would know what we needed to shoot like he didn't need to be there for every 
shoot day. Like we, I, I knew like being one of the producers in the same with D um, D wasn't, you know, the DP or the director, but as a producer, he was there on some of the most important days, even just even by himself. And, you know, Nick and I were able to trust him with that. Um, and I, like knowing the families, knowing the like Grace and Luke, the kids and the moms, just being able to be close with them and comfortable. They trusted us to, um, you know, be there in some of like the most vulnerable times and moments. And I think that's, that's huge. If you just had, you know, a random, a couple of random day players there for a few days of interviews or a couple of days of shooting, every, nothing feels comfortable. There's always that getting to know somebody's stage that, you know, takes some breaking down. Yeah. The, um, that made me think of two things, but the first one is pretty much all the documentarians that I've spoken to on this podcast have all kind of said something similar, which is that like the, almost the biggest part of being in oftentimes is, uh, is the case of DP on any documentary is just getting to know the subject because then, because any normal person is very aware of cameras. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. once you're their friend, they stop caring and they're a little more open and they uh the podcast that nick listened to about the rebel hearts team like that was one thing that they were talking about with these old nuns was like they wouldn't let anyone in this sort of retirement home uh except for this team and they weren't allowed any gear or anything it was just like small camera hold it together go in there get the job done because they you know they were friendly with them yeah i think any any project i work on now um it like the very first couple of days with whoever we're with, like we always try to schedule in one or two days where we have our gear in our hands. We have the cameras in our hands, but we're not shooting anything. So the people, the subjects, the characters, whoever they are, get comfortable with us having the gear. And then when the time comes to shoot, they kind of forget about it. So yeah, very, yeah. Same thing. Just getting to know the subjects. That's the most important part i think yeah we were we were very fortunate that yeah like you said kenny any any documentary filmmaker that you talk to will say the most important thing is access and um these families were so welcoming and um you know there were there were a couple families like the hammersleys that we you know it took uh, i don't i don't think we shot with lauren you know for until you know a few months after we started um, and that's, you know, that's kind of the trust factor and you have to, you have to, yeah, like brands said, you have to build that relationship. And, um, and we were really fortunate that these families were able to open their doors to us and give us this access. And, uh, and it's, you know, the film wouldn't be as successful as it, as it is without that, you know? Um, and, uh, and I think, I think a lot of, you know, from what we understand, a lot of other filmmakers have tried to make, to make this movie and to try to tell this story and it just hasn't panned out and then um for for, for whatever reason uh, it worked out for us and you know, we're we're pretty in debt to these these families for lending us in yeah yeah what um sort of uh you know i i've spoken i noticed after 37 interviews so you know over 40 hours of talking that i that at some point i bring up having gone to ASU's film school during um, it's let's say formative time. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Now it's fucking cool. And you and I, well, anyway, I was going to say, 
What uh, what are some things that uh, you learned, you know, coming out of, let's say, an average film school um, didn't teach you things that they just because the main thing that I've noticed with any um, anyone I've interviewed is, you know, uh, there's a lot of you learn on the day. You know, you can only be so prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the things that maybe uh, you learned on this shoot that maybe uh, someone listening who's working on either a documentary or a narrative type short or feature or whatever mm. just things that stood out to you that you're like damn that's a lesson that i'm going to remember like a very a very boring answer is organization yeah. that is not a boring answer there is I, I, just to organize everything like name the folders and i think nick you did a good job of that and <laughs> d did a great job of um keeping all of our receipts and writing down all the names of people we talked to in emails. Like he had a spreadsheet of all the names and people we had contacted and had not contacted. And when it came down to compile all that information into the delivery package, it was, I mean, it, it, it was there somewhat. It was still very difficult, but I think without any, like had I gone into this film or project on my own, like the way I do things, the way I learned, in school or college, like I, I wouldn't have made it through the delivery process, which would have been so frustrating, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Be organized. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think generally speaking kind of beyond this film, I think uh, just being on sets going out of call, like I learned more on, on commercial sets and film sets just as a PA than I ever did at school and that's not a shot against you know arizona state um it's just as it stands now yeah (laughs) i've been pretty clear at the time it was new (laughs) um yeah i mean i learned a lot at school uh for sure you know uh but you you, that that experience on location is you'll you'll never get that anywhere else um uh so but man in specific like yeah definitely organization i think you know, I had to, and Kenny, you know this um, very well, I had to edit this film on my own because we didn't have the resources to bring on an editor. We, you know, every once in a while we get some money in and we'd be able to to hire some really talented editors like Alex Bose and um, Martina de Alba. Um, uh, but for the most part, it was just kind of me alone at my edit system. So it was... Um, there was a lot of there was a huge learning curve on you know processing speeds you know how to manage your project in premiere um, so it doesn't get too big like i remember complaining to you quite a bit and that's why you're a post consultant credited <laughs> as a post consultant on the film uh, <laughs> kenneth is because the project would get too big and it would just keep crashing on me and i didn't know why and then i you know then you just kind of have to reorganize things to, to free up some space and um so you know handling that handling all this footage could be like, you know, 50 something days of shoots um, for just this project. And so being able to manage all that media was really a huge challenge for me because I'm so not technically savvy that it's, it's embarrassing. Um, And uh, so, yeah, learning how all the processes be and just like, you know, keeping things organized from a very early point, you know, it's like, okay, this is going to be your file structure on day one. And you have to maintain this or else when, if this film is somehow bought by 
you know, distributor, you don't want to be in that position where like, I can't find any of my shit. <laughs> right. right. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that was a huge learning experience. It was just kind of handling all this media and I'm still learning. Like I'm, we're cutting things today and I'm like still, you know, struggling with it, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, work, uh, workflow is huge. Yeah. It's really big. And also like, I think, I think also what, what I learned is, use the people around you ask questions yeah. don't be afraid to ask a question uh because if you're trying to do it alone it's you're gonna fuck it up so you need to ask the experts that know what they're doing for some help even if you have to pay them a little bit um it'll save you so much time and frustration down the road uh ask ask questions as much as possible brandon were you gonna say something Oh, I was going to say budgeting. Well, I mean, for even reasons like that. <clears throat> so if you do have a question in the future, you have that money available so you can ask the question or you can pay somebody for help um, or you, you know, can pay the proper fees for music licensing um, or archival licensing or any of that stuff that can ultimately like make or break your film or shut your film down altogether, <clears throat> just ha- having that money ahead of time is, is huge. We should make it clear to your audience that this was very much our first feature film. Oh, um, Just so, you know, these producers, very these experienced producers who, who tune in <laughs> um, and like, God, these guys have no idea what they're doing. You are absolutely that is correct. right. Yeah. <laughs> Mick, called us, Mick called us noobs early on, and that is 100% true. Yeah, absolutely. Absolute first film, learning every day. Um, it, we're we're do, better people for it, but it was definitely a challenge. Well, and I do want to say uh, it it does not look like a first film. It does not come off like a first film. Uh, it comes off just as good as any fucking documentary I've ever seen. Um, I was very proud of you boys. But uh, to your point on like stuff you kind of don't learn in school and learn on the job, I recently saw... Um, like a tweet from a, an editor, I believe that I follow. And he was saying that he was talking to someone who ran a film school and, or uh, sorry, a guy who was teaching at a film school for one year. And, and he was a gaffer, really established gaffer and literally just taught the students for one semester or a year, how to light a set just straight up. This is how you do this. And they let him go at the end of the year. Cause they said it was too blue collar. Yeah. And it's just like, shit shit like that that they did not teach us in school just straight up like this is how from top to bottom you light a set we never got yeah. that same thing with like i guess they tried to teach us budgeting but they were like download movie magic budgeting read the manual right <laughs> yeah. right right but and they don't they don't teach you if you're on a professional set do not touch the grip team's gear <laughs> just leave it alone don't touch the like don't if there's a camera pa there's acs don't touch their shit that's their shit yep. and they will yell at you and camera crews are are intimidating people. That's what I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brandon, I don't actually know where did you go to school. Uh, I went to the uh, University of Oregon, but not for oh, film. Oh right, right, right. Yeah, journalism, journalism, and documentary film. So it's, it's so fine. you're using your doc- you're using your degree. <laughs> but yeah. you know, I didn't think I was going to barely. I think, but yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um. So to to sort of the good news uh, at the end of the, not that we've like harped on the, the bad news of the subject of the documentary, but it um, 
people can watch it. This is going to go up on Thursday. Um, so in a couple of days from when we're recording this, but the people can watch it on, on MSNBC, right? On when? Yep. Yeah. The, so the film get premieres. We were very fortunate to get the film acquired by MSNBC and the film will premiere on MSNBC on Sunday, November 14th at 10 p.m. Eastern. Um, and we're super, super excited about that. Um, I think the whole, the whole point of this project was to, to give families and that whole community a bigger platform. Because as we mentioned earlier, it's um, a big story that no one's heard of. Even people who live in that neighborhood have never heard of the Santa Susana Field Lab. And um, so this, and, you know, there have been news stories, you know, uh, KMBC LA, they've, you know, they've done a running running kind of segment about it for for a long time since 2013 i think and there's been la times articles but never has it gone national um or very very few times has it gone national and i think this is a a great opportunity for this community to finally be heard by the masses and for for the whole country to kind of know what's going on and um you know one, one thing we that we point out in the film is that uh, Santa Susana in the, uh, the Santa Susana field lab in relation to other like nuclear sites and contaminated sites around the country is very, very small. Um, it's a huge problem here, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a small site. And there are so many communities that are dealing with the same thing that don't have the luxury of LA being right next door and for filmmakers to come up and make a documentary about it. Um, so hopefully uh, this kind of calls attention to other sites that need to be remediated as well. And, uh, you know, we're hope we're hoping for uh, for for you know the, this movement to kind of spread. Um, and MSNBC, MSNBC, hopefully, will provide that opportunity. Yeah, I remember the at one point in the film, there's like a map that shows up, uh, classic Indiana Jones style, and it shows yeah. all of the all of the various um, sites that exist around the country, and it's fucking bonkers. Like it's huge. Yeah, we huge. we think of like Three Mile Island. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and what we mentioned in the movie is that this partial meltdown that happened in, in L.A. actually released more radiation than Three Mile Island. So, and no one knew about it. So, um, yeah, these, these you're you're closer to these types of sites than you think. And it's and it's terrifying and it's it's tragic. And, um, you know, they have they all have a purpose. And I'm sure the the, you know, original goal of those sites was admirable. But. Um, if you make a mess, you got to clean it up. So hopefully this lights a fire under their ass a little bit. Yeah. Well, and I think we all, we all want clean energy. Um, but it always comes down to mismanagement, cutting corners, you know? Yeah. Um, all comes, yeah. All, all comes down to human error. And then, you know, in, in some cases, and, and this is my belief with Santa Zena, Santa Zena field lab it comes down to greed and it comes down to apathy. And, uh, so it's just a, a, a sad reality that we're dealing with in Southern California. Yeah. Before uh, kind of doing our little cap off segment, I, I did want to ask sort of as a educational thing for people listening, um, you know, like you said, this is your first feature film. Um, getting a movie made can take all kinds of forms. You know, it's, it, uh, movies have been made on iPhones, literally, you know, uh, not awesome. What was that? What was that movie? Was it rubber? There's another movie made on an iPhone. I've seen so many shorts recently made on 
made on iPhones. Um, yeah. But in any case, that's uh, Florida, neither here Florida nor there. Project, hmm? that, last, that last scene in Florida Project, mm-hmm. I think that's what that movie's called, right? They, yeah. when they're when they go to Disneyland, Disneyland or Disney World. Yeah, they shoot that oh, on. yeah. Well, but then there's also the uh, just thinking about movies that get made in weird ways, like that movie um, that was made, shot in Disney World. They made like a whole film in Disney oh, World. It's like a horror film. A horror movie, it's, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. It's a it's a it's an interesting kind of gross, like in a good way, but like gross kind of interesting film. Right. Um, well made. But point is, for people listening, you can make your film however you want. How did you guys get it? distribute it because that's the hardest part is getting people to watch it obviously you could just put it on fucking youtube if you wanted um but i know you took it to some festivals what was that sort of timeline like from uh picture lock more or less to um now having it on in this case msnbc yeah nick i'll, I'll let you run with that one. um yeah i mean so i think from the very beginning it's, it's funny because people would ask us when we were editing the film like hey when is this going to be out on youtube um, and that was never, we, I don't know how many times, like we got asked that a lot. Um, yeah. Can we get a that copy? was never our goal. We always had a pretty, yeah, hit me with the Vimeo link. Yeah. yeah. Which is fine. Like Vimeo is a great platform for, for films. And you know, I've, I've watched feature films on Vimeo and it's fine, but that was never our goal. I think if that, where, if that's where it would have ended up, I think, you know, we wouldn't have done our jobs. Um, We've all we always had that that higher goal, and it all started with festivals, um, and the festival circuit. So we just needed to make a festival worthy film, um, and and the way it got distributed actually was just by sheer dumb luck. Um, we have a friend that works at a company called Embassy Row, and uh, we were cutting our sizzle. I think at the time, um, you know, just our fundraising tool. And the sizzle was great. It was cut by our friend Alex Bose, who's an, uh, a great editor. And um, really, he really set the tone for our, our project. But um, we make this sizzle. We send it to our friend at Embassy Row. And uh, she just happened to be in the room with a woman uh, named Shannon Perry, uh, who was leaving Embassy Row for another job at Village Roadshow Television and was going to be, I think, their VP of reality TV or something like that. I'm, I'm butchering the, the job title, but uh, was going to be uh, an executive over at Village Roadshow. And she saw the sizzle with our friend and said, uh, give me their, you know, give me their contact information and let's, uh, you know, I'll option the movie for them and hopefully we can find them, find them a buyer. And so it was just happened. She just happened to be there happened to be like kind of looking over our, our friend's shoulder, our, our friend Anna. Um, and so we got just very, very, very lucky because we were we were sending it around town and, and we weren't getting much traction. And this is just kind of how it happened. You, you always hear those dumb luck stories of how actors get discovered, like walking through the mall or ordering a cheeseburger and they end up becoming these like the biggest A-list celebrities out there. Like that was our dumb luck story for sure. See, or- I... I somewhat disagree with that sentiment because from basically from what I'm hearing and what I know, uh, this, you know, this didn't happen overnight. You spent four years making a compelling story. You spent however many years going through, you know, school and just working, you know, PA fucking whatever. 
uh, making friends, making connections. You know, I've said on this podcast a lot that like one of the luckiest things that happened to me and, you know, probably Nick could say the same and Brandon, you're involved too, is like when we, Brandon didn't go to ASU, but when we all left, there was like 10 of us that left mm-hmm. ASU and came to LA. So we already had a minor network. And then when we started working at various jobs, we had various connections that we could lean on. Um, and so I think it's easy for maybe someone listening to go like, oh, it, you just so happen to be on the phone with someone who fucking worked at Village Roadshow or whatever. But that's not the case. You only get those connections by putting in the work at first. Sure. And then it's yeah. not so much luck. It's it's uh, well, it is it is luck in the sense that the timing happens that way. But uh, it's preparedness and being, you know, being willing to pull the trigger or able to pull the trigger when those opportunities arise. Yeah, I, no, you're absolutely right. And I think what and you asked what we learned on this project. And I um, and I think this is this is one great thing that that I learned is that if you surround yourself with great people, good, you know, great things happen. And, you know, in, in college at Arizona State, we surrounded ourselves with great people. And, you know, this Anna became one of our best friends and um, she surrounded herself with great people and Shannon Perry. And, you know, it, it all you know pays itself forward. And, uh, you know, she, she really uh, saw that what we were doing, what we wanted to do, and she believed in it. And she, you know, t- she did take a chance on a couple of, uh, uh, you know, filmmakers that had really no. I don't think she knew that we didn't know what we were doing. But, um, you know, she she took a chance on us. And then MSNBC, you know, is also taking a chance on, you know, new filmmakers, which we really, really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, that's a, it's a huge lesson that we've learned is just surround yourself with good people and good things happen yeah and i think that kind of answers your question from earlier on kenny it's like what like what did you learn through this process that you didn't learn in film school or you know somewhere else but i think yeah being prepared setting yourself up for when that um moment might pop up yeah and i think that is the secret too with film school is like no matter what film school you go to you're going to learn something to do with film but what you're really going to do is meet a bunch of people who are similarly engaged or not. I mean, certainly there's a bunch of people that we know that became real estate agents or something, you know, completely gave up on it. But um, okay. yeah, surrounding yourself with people who are similarly um, passionate about the art and then uh, pursue it. Yeah. And I think like, even if you don't go to film school and you want to be a filmmaker, I think still, um, you know, whatever profession you're in, if you listen to people and hear their stories, I think that's, I mean, that, that's all a film is. That's all a movie is, is somebody else's story. Um, so, I mean, like really like going to film school kind of had nothing to do with this project. I think right. this project had everything to do with us listening to someone else's story. And so I think, yeah, whether you go to film school or not, I think that's, you know, one thing you could focus on. Yeah. Um, so the way that we uh, like to cap off every interview is kind of with the same two questions uh the first one being um oh man i haven't done an interview in a while i can't remember them uh the first one uh is uh well what's what's one first one is basically what's one piece of advice oh now i remember what's one piece of advice uh that you received whether it have to do with film or or not but something that's just stuck with you for um you know an appreciable amount of time or something that you really apply to your life day to day um and we can start with whoever thinks of it first, but obviously if it's film related, it's more uh, on topic. Does it have to be something that was actually told to us or just something? That can be no, something. Heard? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Hang on. I look like I have a seating hairline right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
still, we can't edit that out. Which I do not. Wait, can you say that question again? What's a, a piece of advice that you either received or stumbled upon that had an appreciable effect on either your career trajectory or even your life, which in a lot of cases for filmmakers are kind of uh, inextricably linked? I'm going to come up with another answer while Nick's talking. But the first, I don't know why this came to my my head, but like the, the, the first thing that pops into my head is just, just be nice, be a good person. Bro, that's, everyone has said that. That's not a bad piece really? of advice. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, um, credit my mom and dad. Like they just, that was like their one lesson. God, I mean, every day, like leaving for school, it was just be nice, like have fun, be nice. Don't be mean, you know, have a good time, but treat people the way you want to be treated. And like, honestly, I think that's how you surround yourself with good people. Like you were saying, Nick, I think if you're nice, you'll surround yourself with other nice people. And if you're able to do, um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't know if I like where this answer is going, but yeah, it's just, uh, (laughs) yeah. Nick, you jump in. I'm going to, I'm going to think of another one. I haven't thought of my answer yet because that's (laughs) a hard question. Um, I think my, like, guess my kind of cop-out answer because I'm folding under pressure is um, it, it's not a piece of advice that was ever given directly to me. It's just something that I've learned um, watching a ton of interviews by this person and it's Quentin Tarantino. And he's, you know, he's pretty unapologetic when he says he's stolen from every movie that he's ever watched. Mm-hmm. And I kind of love that because, you know, you, like, I don't know how many different documentaries and, and scripted narratives are probably in our movie uh, with, you know, like I, I couldn't tell you, oh, this scene is, is, uh, you know, an homage to to lack for lack of a better word is an homage to this scene uh, from this really famous movie. Cause uh, I, I think it's just kind of, you watch these movies so many times, um, you know, as you're growing up and they kind of just kind of get embedded in your brain. And it's kind of becomes your second nature to, to, you know, pay, pay them respect by putting them in, putting those ideas in your film and, you know, trying it a different way. And, but you, you kind of using that baseline idea to, to tell your story. And uh, I'm sure that is, I'm sure there's a lot of Jurassic Park in our, in our, you know, activist documentary. Um, but uh, I mean, even in some of the animations, soldiers, but yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. That, and those, that animation that we use in there is like, you've got a very dark tone. Um, and that's, there's de- definitely a little bit of Christopher Nolan or the Batman animated <laughs> series. Yeah, absolutely. And you, I still uh, watch that series. So, <laughs> so good. Yeah. The, uh, the one, um, uh, what was I going to say when you were saying steel? Uh, I think, a theory of mine that I've had for a while is I think a lot of people worry about being derivative and certainly that can happen. You know, uh, no one wants to just straight rip somebody off, but I think it, once you build enough of a palette of films that you enjoy and you're stealing from multiple sources, you're no longer being derivative. Now you're being an artist, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's everyone we are, you're part of, I feel like if you're truly interested in the art form and not just about making moving pictures or, you know, cause now, now there's like vlogs and stuff, which I would not say is necessarily filmmaking specifically. Um, 
if you truly feel like you're part of the art form, you're part of a lineage and you should be able to point to where your inspirations and your um, references come from and, and kind of what made you the artist that you are today. Great. Yeah. You just made us feel so much better about stealing from other yeah. people. <laughs> well put. Thanks for justifying it. <laughs> Danny, actually, me, uh, me and Danny were talking yesterday. She was saying she actively, her her dance teacher told her to literally, you know, ste- she said out loud, steal from, look at the your people dancing next to you. And if they do something you like, steal that. Make that yeah. yours, you know? I mean, I think it's impossible to not be influenced by everything you watch. And if, if it moves you, then, you know, in some way you do want to replicate that feeling that you have when you watch that movie or watch that, that TV show. Um, and so, yeah, I think that'll be true with, uh, you know, every project moving forward for, for me personally. Well, and there's no, uh, I don't think any singular person except for some like generational talents uh, are ever solely um, responsible for something they've made. I don't think, I don't think anyone's just been like, I've never seen a movie and now I'm going to make something wholly original, you know? Yeah. You're, you're, you're more, yeah, you're more full of shit. If you're, if you're saying this is the most original thing that's ever come out. It's like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I appreciate uh, Tarantino owning up to it and being like, I've stolen everything. (laughs) Yes, Brandon, go ahead. I I would like to add on, I would like to add on to my answer. Be nice, be kind, like just be a good person. It's easy. It it doesn't take work. Also trust other people. I think that is uh, like the biggest lesson I've learned over like the past couple of years is I always wanted things to be the way I wanted them to be. And if you trust other people to do their job as we had to do on this project, it, things will work out. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a, it, it would have been impossible to do this just ourselves. So we, we're, we're completely, uh, we owe the world to, you know, our composer, Katie Jarzbowski, who, Gosh. you know, brought so much uh, of her personality into the movie. Um, and, you know, again, was teaching us how to do it. You know, this is, you know, you have to be picture locked and this is how we, you're going to deliver materials to me. And I'm going to, this is how the notes process is going to be. And we're, it was so much fun learning that process. And then Elise Kelly and her team who, uh, who did all the animation, we have three animated sequences in the film. And, um, that was so much, that was such a fun, uh, learning experience for all of us. And it was like any, any time those, those two genius women, um, would show us a piece of music or an animated sequence. It was like, we always called it Christmas, um, Mm -hmm. because it was such a new, it, it, cause it was, it was so new every time. Uh, and it was just made the experience so exciting and so fun. And, uh, we, yeah, those, those two, um, artists really, they're just complete artists. Uh, like true yeah, artists. Yeah, yeah. Really made, gave the movie a lot of personality and, uh, we love them for it. hundred percent. Really awesome. Yeah. The, the music and, and the mixing too, are just like seeing it in a theater is, is really, it's dope. It's going to be on TV, but uh, hopefully yeah. it can get hit and hit like a theatrical release. Cause that, that mix is pretty uh, interesting. Um, and also Brandon, to your point, the sort of like decentralized command thing of just like letting people do what they want. <laughs> I think when you trust people uh, with, you know, a, a large, what appears at least to be a larger chunk of the final product, they become more invested. They put their best effort. Um, yeah. I know for a fact, if you tell people like you're a peon, you get your paycheck, do what I say, 
and it has to be my way, they're going to phone it in every time. Well, yeah, it, it becomes a paycheck and that's, that's all it is. You want to get through the day and yeah, it does. It's not a passion project. Um, but yeah, you know, even beyond that, I think it just the pro like any project, not just this one, it's, but it's better off with a big collaborative effort from everyone. So yeah. if you allow people to do their jobs, more people are collaborating. So it, like you said, it's just, yeah, more passion involved. And we know for a fact that the, the, those two, Katie and Elise, did not do this for the money because we did not have oh. a lot. <laughs> yeah. So we were very much appreciative of, uh, of uh, the amount of work they put in for very, very little resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think a big key, again, is not to keep uh, giving you the OTPHJ, but it is like it's a film that I think if anyone saw it, you know, would welcome the ability to participate because it is um, it is it is a really uh, great piece of work. Um, there's actually a set of a follow-up question, uh, which is much simpler, which is what is a film that each of you think, um, someone should watch besides yours, something, not, not necessarily a recent film, but something that you think like, you know what, pe- more people need to see, you know, mm-hmm. in cold blood or whatever. Right. <laughs> um, Hmm. What is the name of it? Nick, I know, you know, what movie I'm thinking of. Uh, it came out on Amazon. It was about aliens. Oh, oh, uh, the vast of night. Yes. Yes. That movie. More people should see that movie because it does, there is a slow burn, um, to it. And it has a very, uh, Steven Spielberg, JJ Abrams kind of vibe. It's awesome. That movie, another independent film. Yeah. Another independent film. Yeah. What? Like, I think their budget was so low. I heard this. I don't remember where I heard this, but the most expensive part of the film, what it was set in the 19, 20s? 50s. 1950s. 50s. So it was set in a time when the three-point line had not been created. Oh. <laughs> so the most expensive part of the movie was there was a long tracking shot that went into the high school gym. They had to remove the three-point line from the floor and paint it back after they were done with the production. And that was the most expensive part of production. So I've heard. That's uh, so fucking we'll, hilarious. Yeah. Uh, it's that that movie really that that's a good call, Brian. That that movie stuck with me for a long time. That's a good. It, it just makes you feel. Yeah, it's like one of those movies that like makes you just feel really good after you watch yeah. it. Like the the ending of it, I won't spoil it for anybody. But it's just you're just like, oh yes, yeah. Like that is a as a perfect moment. That is a perfect mesh of beautiful visuals, amazing acting, and really good music. A really good uh, you know composer. Um, yeah, and almost Sorkin-esque dialogue. Yeah, that that opening scene is quick. Yeah, it's quick dialogue, but it's a single shot, right? Yeah, the the scene where she's at the uh, the switchboard. Oh man! Oh yeah, she's there for so long, and and you don't realize it's yeah, 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 that's the longest take ever, and she and she kills it. Like the acting, the actors, they kill it in that movie. And you know, I don't, it's uh, yeah, so good, so good. Fast night. Fast Night's great. Nick, do you want to stick with that one or do you want to add another one? Looking at my posters. Go see Skyfall. I mean, I think every I think everyone who I've talked to loved this movie, but Jojo Rabbit immediately mm. came into yeah. my uh it's a top five, top five movies I've ever seen. Uh, and I've I've seen that movie so many times. So that's that's definitely a, a movie that makes you cry, makes you laugh all at the same time. So it's um Did I see that with you? It. 
Yeah, I think we saw it at the, the, at the, the arc light at the dome. Yep. Yeah, I feel like Nick last. saw it ten times in theaters. He probably saw yeah. it. Everybody. Yeah. I just got I just got the poster. And it's hanging up, nice, beautiful in my office. It's awesome. Love it. Well, well, uh, thanks for doing the uh, the old podcast. Um, thanks for having us. Thanks, yeah, man. A lot of fun chatting. Hopefully, uh, you know the MSNBC is only the start of uh, more people being able to see it. And are, are you guys going to be still doing um, festivals going forward, or is that kind of over now? Uh, yeah. Over as of now. this moment. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. We 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 were fortunate. Enough, we'll, we'll plug our own victories, but we yeah, we were fortunate enough to win best. Uh, documentary feature at Ojai, LA Docs, uh, Phoenix Film Festival, and Catalina Film Festival. So we had a we had a great festival run. That's um, if anyone is uh, you know looking to make a movie and wants to, to submit it to festivals, it's the most fun. Like going to a film festival and showing your film in front of a crowd is is so rewarding and really cool. And you meet a lot of cool filmmakers. And yeah, going to the festival. Yeah. Like the virtual festival festivals were cool, but going is it's like going to summer camp every yeah. time. It's all awesome. so fun. Yeah, there was there was a couple of documentary DPs who had said or just I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure they were all doc DPs, but they same thing. They had the virtual like um, Sundance or whatever, mm-hmm. and they were like, it's cool because you you know get to see a bunch of movies that you wouldn't have been able to see either way. But he, I remember specifically, um, his name escapes me right now, but. Uh, he was saying that he was like, you would start doing the interview and it was no different than where you edited the damn thing. And right. like, is that feeling that you're saying of like being there and showing it and that that mm-hmm. why kind of everyone gets into filmmaking wasn't yeah. there. And so that release didn't quite. Happen. Yeah, I don't think there's there's no more satisfying feeling than screening it in front of a, an audience. It's it's a very that's an extremely new sensation um, for me. So it's. And for, for all of us. And so it's, that was really rewarding. And even, yeah. and then seeing it with the families as well, that it per- participated in the film and yeah. uh, you kind of watching their reactions, uh, you know, as they watch themselves on the screen going through this terrible time. And um, that, that was like, you know, that's something that uh, you don't get to get to do in a lot of professions. So right. we were grateful for the experience. And you get to meet. So like the, I mean, you know, Q and A's are great after a movie, but, being able to go have a beer with the filmmakers after you learn so much more about the story and their process and them as individuals. Like, gosh, I can't tell you how many new friends I made in this short amount of yeah. time just at those festivals. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, submit and go if you get in. hundred yeah. percent. Well, uh, thanks again. And uh, I'll probably actually Nick, I'm going to see you tomorrow. So yeah, see you at dinner. <laughs> all right. Uh, I'll talk uh, to you guys later. Kenneth, for real, man. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, man. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the FNR Mapbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>